Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 69. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we have an extra special guest. Actually, it's one of the few guests we've actually had, but that's Jay Pestricelli, founder hey, of uh, <laughs> Zig Financial, author of the book Buy and Hedge. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've been a, a regular guest of the program, and it's interesting. Uh, it's good to have you back on. But you and I have been talking a lot about just some historical context about, you know, this whole period we've just gone through, we're still in. It's a little bit early to do sort of a post analysis of the drawdown. Uh, I mean, it's it's quite early. Like we could be setting ourselves up. Anything we say here could be outdated in a week. But, you know, we were just kind of bouncing around the idea of comparing the speed of this drawdown, the causes, uh, what's happened in the markets to kind of, you know, 08, 01, 97, 98. Neither of us was, you know, in the markets necessarily on any professional level in 87. But I mean, Jay, it's, it's just interesting. I mean, and I think from, you know, if you looked at CNBC back in any of those periods, there would be some some themes that sort of cross over. But I also think it's like, I just remember in the moment, like no one knew it was happening, but all these are different. And I don't know. I mean, like, do you have any perspective? And I'll, I'll kind of share mine too, of what's just happened and, you know. I'm with, yeah, I, listen, these, uh, the market turmoil comes and it goes, right? I mean, that's, I think that's your point. And you just rattled off, you know, in the not so distant past, how many times we've seen, you know, dramatic market volatility rear its head. Um, and you're right. No two are the same. I know people like to say, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I, I'm not sure I necessarily believe that. I do think, you know, it may look the same when you step back, but uh, you're right. There's all of these events that that uh, that have happened in our investing lives, and um, it's it's it's. You're right. We're not through this yet, right? We don't know what it looks like to even you know open up all the states, right? I mean, but we've never had this kind of a shutdown before, right? So the the numbers seem more dramatic now in a lot of ways than any of these that we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. But uh, it to me, it's it's speed that finds this one to be super interesting to me. You know the speed of the decline, the speed of the recession. I'm not sure about the speed of the recovery yet to be determined um, compared to the to the past. And but I I do think that um, uh, you know financial markets uh, are are going to go through these things on a pretty regular basis. And you know I know you want my perspective on them, and and uh, we'll talk about each each one of them in a moment, I believe. But I when I when I you know, just getting your head level and getting through the panic has to be the first step that hopefully most people have have done that so far. Um, and then the other thing I just say is uh, more evident in this one than any others is that, you know, the disconnect between the economy and the markets is more stark now than I've ever seen before. Yeah. You know, and, and we had talked about there's that that great commercial with uh, with Chuck Schwab, Chuck Schwab, Charles Schwab, right, founder of of Charles Schwab, and uh, where he goes, right, he talks about the. Actually, I'll let you talk about it, but it's. I think it's a great commercial that has a lot of perspective, and we talk about. It, hopefully, people are like, oh yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, I, uh, I I applaud Schwab for putting out such a calming uh, message, right? I think the for those of you that haven't seen it, it's. You know, he says he was born in 37 and the markets have gone up and got down. And he says, listen, we've we've been through crashes. We've been through exuberance. This is a very normal pattern. Right. And then we go down, we go up, we go down and we go up. But stay the course, stay, you know, uh, uh, stay invested. And, you know, it 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 helps. I think anybody, even us, Derek, like we, you know, we're in the market. We know we're supposed to you know, remove emotion from our decisions, but it really just helps. It just gives that calming message. And I think that's what I think you and I want to give today is these cycles are very normal. We're going to get through this. Um, uh, and your investing history, when you look back, this will be more than a blip, but it, that's all it'll be. It'll be a blip. And this is not uncommon. And what's happening right now is not, uh, uh, it's unique in the way that it's happening, but the fact that it is happening is not unique. By the way, Chuck, Chuck Schwab, you know, I, I worked at Schwab a long time ago, and, and I remember the longest I probably talked to him, uh, I had won an, uh, like an annual award, and, you know, you went up to San Fran and you got 
you know, one of those deals where you get to spend. And I wound up talking to him for probably 15, 20 minutes. And it's really interesting, uh, his perspective on things. And it, even in that conversation, how measured and calm. And you and I both got to spend a little time with Joe Ricketts as, you know, the founder of Ameritrade. But it's just as an aside, I mean, thinking about like all these people show these historical, uh, hey, if you would have invested starting in 1800 and reinvested dividends, like it's people like Chuck Schwab and Joe Ricketts who democratize things for the average investor. I mean, you couldn't reinvest dividends until Schwab did it, I think, in, in the 90s. I haven't done any research to remember but the commissions and everything. Anyway, just an aside, it got, and you know, both of those people are really entrepreneurial and, uh, and kind of innovative. Pioneers, in right? Pioneers yeah. for the masses. And I know Wall Street always gets a bad rap because it seems about, you know, greed is such a big part of it, but it's about growth. It's about building wealth. And, uh, but, but guys like, like Joe and Chuck that you just mentioned have really helped, uh, I'd say guys like you and I, Right. I mean, yeah. we, you know, yeah. we, we were do it yourselfers who eventually became advisors. And, uh, but just to learn the business, it just, it wasn't accessible before, right, to the masses. And so, you know, hats off to them. And I know we don't want to talk too much about, about all of that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, more people are investing now than ever before. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. It needs to be a part of everybody's long term plan. Yeah. No, we could probably do a separate podcast on that. Others have, and they're probably do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more in depth than we would. No, it's just, it's, it is extraordinary. I mean, to think, uh, you know, and, and one of the things in that video talked about the ups and downs. Like if you look at a long-term chart of the market and Jeremy Siegel, the professor from Wharton wrote a book, Stocks for the Long Run. And, and it's the same case. I mean, you've stretched that chart out long enough. You've got 2008, you've got, you know, he mentions different pandemics, wars, Vietnam, oil shocks, it sort of has these ups and downs, but um, I think this one too, Jay, I, you're right. I mean, the speed of it, I mean, when you think about this and we'll just talk about the current one, it's like February 21st, we were at an all-time high. The economy was doing great. I mean, there was nothing in the economy in the numbers that was saying recession. And then all of a sudden within, I think it was two weeks, I mean, the market's down 30% plus off the all-time highs. Some sectors are off more. And it's like, we're getting report. I mean, this happened so quick. We're getting still the, the fourth quarter reports that were really good. And everybody knows like a recession is coming. It's just, I think to your point about the speed of it and the shock and, and some of the panic. Um, and also, I mean, think about the forward guidance. It's even today. I mean, none of the companies are really giving, nobody knows, right? So um, but the panic is one of the things that can cause problems in this type of market. The unknown was 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 so severe out of the gate. I remember the 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 night where the NBA said they're suspending the season, right? And it was like, wow, that might have been the same night that we heard Tom Hanks had the virus, right? It was like, oh my gosh, it's like you, you can't have America's dad be sick, and you can't have. Uh, uh, you know, one of our, our biggest pastimes canceled, like how bad is this going to be? And, you know, that fear just cascaded in for a lot of reasons, right? It wasn't only fear that drove it, right? And we'll, we'll probably talk about our unofficial rule of three in a minute. But uh, it, that, that, that unknown fear was, uh, you know, when in doubt, go to cash because we know cash is cash, right? And uh, there was no place, no place to hide from that panic in March. I think at one point, I I think I turned the TV on and I'm like, I can't believe it's been like four weeks since we've seen an NBA game. And somebody's like, that was last week. Like, that's the <laughs> other thing. Every, like, what was it? What was the quote? Everyone's been quoting it, but you know, a day is like a year, a year is whatever it is. It, it, it's just, everything was so compressed, right? Everything was accelerated, super accelerated and con and condensed. And by the way, I think that's why, uh, you know, the market has behaved the way it has the last month and a half, which you know, at this date here on May 21st uh, is a rebound, right? It has shown some real uh, uh, support, right? I mean, any fundamental analyst can, it, it can't justify what's happened here, but I think it's anticipation, right? There's anticipation of the fastest recession and one of the deepest recessions in history to anticipation of a rebound because this will be behind us. But it's, it's uh, that disconnect between the actual market and the economy is 
the starkest I've ever seen. I, I had a I had a client reach out to me and said, "Hey, I heard you know Q two is going to be really bad. Should we uh, uh, should we get out of the market?" I was like, "Listen, that's done. Q two numbers are behind us, even though we're in the middle of it right now. Right, the market right now is pricing that twenty twenty has been thrown away. Twenty twenty one is." is where it's starting to take a look at the way the pricing is working today, which is, I know the market is a forward-looking vehicle, but this is really looking forward right now. Yeah, I mean, to put this into perspective, so the the earnings per share on the S&P index, the estimate was something like $179 per share. And, you know, you see, you think about all the earnings for all the companies in the S&P, and, and Goldman, I think now is at, I don't know, 129 which not only is no growth because last year was 163, 162, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you talked to, you know, the rule of three. So this is Jay's unofficial rule of three, right? Like there's three things that cause a decline. So get, give me like your three. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, newsflash, one of them's COVID-19, but you know, just talk about that. Yeah. So this time around, I always look for three as kind of the, uh, uh, it takes three things to really cause the markets to get into a panic mode. Um, and so this time around, it was clearly uh, the virus, right, uh, that started rearing its head in, in late February. Um, that was number one, obviously, and people were concerned about earnings and shutdowns and pandemics and what's this really mean to us, and that impacted stock prices. The second was, and it didn't happen that far after, was a collapse in bond yields, right? We, saw, we, we hit all-time lows on the treasury rates, um, uh, the, the, the lack of liquidity in the bond market uh, caused all sorts of issues. So that was number two. And the number three to boot was in our commodity market, which was the oil war, right? And I, I mean, that we're not done with that, although Saudi Arabia is being nicer. But all of a sudden, Russia and Saudi Arabia decide to flood the market with tons of uh, uh, oil, much, you know, increasing capacity at the time of a decreasing demand in an effort literally to break the U.S. shale market. And so you had that as number three. And it was, you know, I think the morning, uh, I, think, I think it was Russia said it on Sunday, that Monday morning was the first time where the curbs kicked in, uh, meaning the, they, they closed the stock market after it opened because it had dropped too much in a single day. I think that was the first time in 24 years. And, you know, it took those three things. By the way, we kept going down after that. But it was those three things that caused us to really start to maximize the fear in this particular instance. I wonder if there's a contrarian, like there's three things that happened to show a bottom. And, and a friend of mine who I haven't talked to in a long time called me when oil went negative and asked if he could buy a barrel of oil. And I told him, not only can you not buy one, the contract size is like a thousand. But there are serious problems with you can't store a barrel of oil in your living room. You will die from the the toxic fumes coming out. Anyway, that's uh, but like it, it and it happens at tops too. Um, but you see like this capitulation. Like I th- and who knows when the you know we don't know what the market's going to do tomorrow. That's why we hedge right and have a, have a plan. But I do think people who haven't done anything for years with the portfolio and maybe go into their four hundred one k and liquidate. A lot of that probably happened at capitulation when the market was at you know twenty one hundred, um, but there, there's sort of these these tells that also are the opposite side of it too, and um, you know, yeah, I mean all those things. But I think you're right. I mean, it just there was a confluence of events, and you know the the lack of demand in oil at the same time when. Like, there's a lot of people point to say, you know, look, maybe this was an opportunity to increase supply. Uh, get the the U.S. you know oil producers out of the market, right? Because they were only profitable a certain amount. But obviously, the the virus overstakes everything. I mean, but yeah, I mean, they're listen, they're all linked, right? One yeah. causes another, causes another. But usually, when those three do- three dominoes topple, it's it's you know it's going to be nasty. Um, you mentioned about an opportunity in the oil market for resupplying. I don't know if you remember, there was a Friday uh, where Trump came out and said, "All right, we're going to buy oil to help prop up." the U.S. oil business, the market went up 7% in 30 minutes on a Friday afternoon, right? It's unbelievable the speed of all of these things happening, right? And it just kind of goes to show as each one of these pieces gets solved uh, or gets resolved or dealt with, you could start to have a recovery. And if I, if, you know, if I had to say how these things are being or what resolution will look like to the three, you know, I'll, 
the three the three things that caused us to topple this time, right? I think vaccine or treatment is going to be the thing that helps the COVID piece. And we see that every time you have a news release or a press release that some biotech firm has uh, made pro- pos- positive progress on a vaccine or a treatment, market jumps three, four, five percent. Um, you've got the Fed coming in to support the bond market, uh, really providing liquidity, unprecedented purchases of uh, uh, of U.S. debt, even to the point where they're going to buy junk bond ETFs, right? But the amount of money the government is throwing at the bond market, so that is helping to stabilize yields. And then, you know, you just meant we just talked about how oil stability is is coming in here, right? I mean. Um, I think I saw an interview with the Chevron CEO uh, right after oil went negative. And he said, listen, we're just going to leave it in the ground for a little bit. That's OK. That's our storage. It's free storage. We'll leave it in the ground. We'll pull it back out once this you know, nonsense of, of negative oil contracts goes away. And so I think things like that, things like the government stocking up on you know, building up the U.S. oil reserves, those are helping to uh, solve that issue. And now Saudi Arabia has cut back uh, production as well. And so while I'm not an oil expert, I'm just pointing out that, you know, the three things that cause the problems all have working resolutions uh, uh, against them. And it's part of the reason why the market has seen the, what, up, we're up 30% off the bottom, right, from March 23rd, something like that. So there you go. I think one of the things that, that helps you and I too, and, and uh, you know, also our, our trader, Mick, we'll, we'll throw him in here, although he's not on the, the broadcast. You know, when, when we talk... Just having been through some of these, you know, we, we've seen this stuff like spreads widening and things like that. And I, I think back, you know, the most recent one, and we'll kind of go to 01, we'll go to maybe 97, not necessarily in that order, but, you know, we think about 08. Uh, what would the, I mean, obviously, 08, everyone thinks about um, the speed of the decline, but, you know, 08 and 09, I think the decline was more, it was over a longer period. Uh, there were sort sure. of a lot you know, longer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a lot longer. It was, it was like, it took longer to play out, but you know, you could talk about the three things there, but I mean, what do you, what do you remember about 98? And I can give my color too on it. Not 98, uh, 2008. Sorry, Jay. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. I know you'll hit on 98, but when I think about 2008, it's, it was systemic risk, financial systemic risk. You know, at the time you and I were both working at TD Ameritrade. Um, and I remember speaking to uh, folks in our clearing organization and, you know, they were concerned about liquidity of our, you know, stock loan book, right? And this is uh, uh, no secret. I'm not sharing inside baseball, but, you know, part of the way your operation works is when you have too much stock, you need to collateralize it and you just take a loan from one of your partner banks. And then sometimes people take a loan from you, right? It's a stock loan business. The whole clearing uh, a network within the brokered space gives loans, two, three-day loans all the time. Well, all of that dried up. Um, when I had heard that nobody was making loans, I think I remember seeing a story where GE couldn't get a loan to produce light bulbs. I mean, that had nothing to do with the financial crisis, but just business stopped, right? You could, loans were done. Nobody could get a loan for anything as a course of business. And when that happened, it caused systemic risk. Um, obviously, you know, the, that contagion went into all sorts of other industries. And you look at the the companies that went out of business, the names that we all should know, but have been gone for a decade, Bear Stearns, um, Merrill Lynch had to get bought by Bank of America, Wachovia went out of business. I think we all remember Countrywide, which is a huge mortgage lender, went out of business. Um, Lehman Brothers, there's the one that the government let fail. And it turned out, they didn't want to let that happen this time, but I think there were a lot of lessons from the Lehman exercise, right? I mean, political pressure and uh, uh, moral hazard kind of all kicked in there. No one's talking about moral hazard right now, but at some point it will it will come to light. Um, you know, when you th- when I remember 08 and I think about all of those collapses, uh, it was it was systemic financial systemic collapse and the risk of our entire capitalist society, and that would just it was hard to know when it was going to end. And it was teetering on the edge. And of course, TARP helped bail out quite a bit. And the government had to step in again and kind of bail out. In that scenario, a lot of folks blamed Wall Street, right? Well, it was uh, bad lending. It, but, and I know there's so many movies made about this topic. I, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't suggest watching all of them, but I do feel 
um, a lot of them tell an interesting story that it was consumers and lenders together uh, caused that kind of a crisis. And um, we may want to touch on why that didn't or hasn't, knock on wood, hasn't happened this time around, Eric. I mean, if you want to share a little bit about uh, uh, the whole, you know, Dodd-Frank and collateralization, how that legislation impacted, that, sorry, that was implemented in 2014-15 actually created a buffer that the banks could absorb. Well, maybe I just kind of gave you my answer, but I don't know about you. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'll just, I, I mean, you can, um, so credit default swaps, right? If everyone, I did a whole episode breaking down the big short. It's, uh, I don't want to call it a rewatchable because that's what Bill Simmons does on, on his podcast, but I kind of explained credit default swaps. And, and one of the problems in, in 2008 was if bank A or, or uh, you know, investment bank A buys insurance against something going bad. Like imagine if you, if I could buy an instrument that if you not hurt in any way, maybe you left the, you know, your car, the parking brake off your car and it goes down the hill and into the ocean. Like I, if your car is worth X amount and it goes to zero, I would make money on the difference. The problem there is, you know, if Goldman Sachs buys an instrument from AIG, but AIG goes out of business, then the heads that they thought they had can't get paid out because, because AIG has gone, you know, so they, they have counterparty risk. But I think also, you know, the banks are much better collateralized now. I think the rules you mentioned uh, about how they manage risk, about, you know, their value at risk, and there's problems with that as well. Uh, but I, I think the banks are much better off now, much better capitalized. They do the stress test and a lot of that counterparty stuff. I mean, I, I think that's where you were going with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, without getting too much into it, we see that uh, we see the banks in the market uh, buying protection against their portfolios with with how the way we invest and the way we trade. Right. There are times where um, we're right in there with the banks trading when they're adding protection and we're generating income or vice versa. So, yes, we definitely have seen the collateralization and the protection of the bank's portfolios uh, uh, show. And I wish we'd have more. I wish we'd hear more about um, uh, if it's been working well or not. From my view, it looks like it has. Um, the only risk the banks have really been, or the only, I'll say the, the the issue the banks have reflected in their stock prices is the fact that with rates where the, how low they are, it's hard for them to make money, right? They make the difference between what they lend and borrow at. We call that the net interest margin rate. Um, with with the 10 years sitting at you know, 65, 70 basis points, it's really hard for them to make money. You know, at those levels, but try try being a European bank, Jay. Try try being a bank in Europe at negative rates, anyway, or Japan. But but go ahead. I didn't mean to- <laughs> you can ask Deutsche Bank how they're doing with that. Yeah, not so yeah. great. But anyway, but yes, I do think that uh, some of the lessons we learned in 08 definitely helped us uh, from not dropping as far as we have in this crisis. Um, and you know, I'm not saying the bottom's in. Uh, it feels like it could be, but you know, the this. Uh, health crisis could have turned into a financial crisis. And I think if people can't pay their mortgages over the next year, then maybe we do see that. But for now, there hasn't been a lot of evidence of it. I think it's a great point to make, like just thinking back in the heat of the moment in, in 2008, 2009. I mean, you're right. It's like, what what would make the market surge? What would make this, I mean, right, vaccine, uh, this thing burns itself out or it, it migrates into some less dangerous strain or whatnot. Um, but you're right. I mean, we still don't know about long-term commercial real estate. I know anecdotally, 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 you know, I've talked to some people who who say there's going to be people moving out of cities. I'll leave that to them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 2008, like you didn't, there wasn't that one thing that you could point to. It's almost like people, um, it's like when two cars are trying to merge and, and they can't figure out the right order. I mean, it was in 2008, it's like things just had to settle down. Um, and I did, there was no really end in sight. Yeah. And that's, I think that's why it lasted so long, Derek. I think you're right, right? Because you didn't know how deep it was going to go because, you know, the, the, the failure of the banks was drawn out and it wasn't one day all, they all just went. It wasn't like when the government said, okay, everybody's got to shelter in place, right? It wasn't like that. It was, oh, in 07, Bear Sturds went. And oh, in, you know, middle of 08, you had Le- or the end of 08, you had Lehman go, right? It lasted a while. Um, and you didn't know how it was going to end up because it was, uh, 
you know, you had a lot of people going bankrupt because they owned property that they couldn't pay mortgages on. And, you know, it was, you're right. It, it, it took so much longer to get through it. Um, and I think that's why the recovery also took uh, a lot longer as well to get back to the, you know, 07 highs after, uh, after that drop. You know, before we move on, maybe we'll move on to 97, 98 next. But one of the interesting things too, from, from the 08, 09 period, obviously the S&P at one point was down, you know, up upwards of 55%. There were other markets that were down more. I take a, you know, like high yield uh, was down 26% in 2008. And by the way, the next year it was up 58% in 2009 as people. Uh, but I mean, it, it kind of, um, it, it's always interesting um, how certain areas of markets, when they're at their worst, sometimes they get their best performance in the next couple of years. But that's when people are most fearful and they, they miss it. You know, they stay out of that. They miss it. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, you bring up high yields specifically. And I think we, we use high yields quite a bit for some of our portfolios. When you look at those really bad years, they're almost always followed by really great years, right? It is, it is the ups and downs. It is the Chuck Schwab commercial where he's going up with his hand and down with his hand, you know, like, like, you know, like, like you do out of the window with your hand when you're driving, right? Ups yeah. and downs, ups and downs. And, um, uh, and yeah, and high yield had a rough go of it this time around, not as bad as 08. Uh, but you know what? It's history tells us that it probably has a, gr- a triumphant rebound. And like, by the way, it's not only high yield, it's many, many asset classes. When they end up having the worst years, they're followed by great years after that, right? It's just a natural uh, divergence and convergence of different asset classes through the market. That's true. It's a good point. I, but I know you want to move on to, to, to 98, Derek. I, will, I do want to re- remind you of, a, of an interesting time yeah. uh, uh, that we, you and I personally saw in the uh, 08, uh, 09 decline was the volatility market. And um, as, as uh, option traders, you and I are always looking for what's the most opportunistic trade and where is there a lot of pricing mismatch. Um, we, we learned a lot about the volatility markets uh, uh, in those years, and, and it actually helped us quite a bit this time through. Um, you know, the VIX, uh, uh, we, we got new highs on the VIX this time around, right? The representation for the volatility market. Um, and it was higher and longer, right? What we saw in 08 where the VIX, you know, touched 90, but then dropped down to 80, really did never close above 80 or barely closed above 80. Um, this time around, we were at the 80 mark for a while and we probably should have been more like the 120 mark, right? And this was very interesting. Even the volatility markets didn't know how to how to digest this one properly. Do you mean they didn't accurately forecast ten percent plus or minus ten percent moves day after day? I mean, yeah, no, they weren't getting that right. That's true. It was wild, right? How off? And and we've we've put out you and I both have put out content about how far off the options market was versus what really happened, um, which was rare, right? The options market usually overestimates the moves. This time around, it uh, it didn't. It didn't, right? It got it wrong. And I also think, remember in 2002, just the that volatility, meaning the the premiums that people had to pay for options, that stayed high for a very, very long time. And that's, um, it's, it's, you know, we've only been since uh, the end of February, March, but you're talking 08, 09, volatility stayed really high for that whole time. I mean, it was extended how high that was, um, which is, which is sort of interesting. I, I think, you know, when I look at 08, it was different. It was much longer. Again, we, you know, uh, you could play this podcast in a year and people will be like, you know, they missed the next 50% down or they missed the next 50% up, you know, who knows, right? Which is why, you know, one of the reasons why we're big proponents of hedging. It's like, you're not, you're trying to, you know, hedge, hedge your positions. And if, if you do get a material drawdown, it's also one more thing before I move on. I remember we were involved with the client education, you know, trying to teach people how to trade better, how to manage risk. And, and it's interesting because maybe that's what clouds my, my 08, 09 as, you know, I saw a different side of that because the people I was interacting with were actually, you know, using spreads to limit the amount of, at risk on a position, to using stop orders, to using options to hedge. And a lot of those people actually took bearish positions, meaning they profited when the markets went down. Um, and a lot of people, you know, because of some of the hedging that they did and we were teaching people. So when I think back, like I don't, rem- 
the cohort, I'll call it the cohort, you know, the people that I was really most in front of from a client side, like they were pretty measured throughout this. And actually some of them were like, Hey, you know, we, we did okay when the market was, was going down. I don't know. It's just different. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. I mean, um, what, if you have more tools at your disposal, it gives you a lot more, you know, choices, you know, when you're long stock or long a mutual fund, the only, you have two choices, hold it or sell it. That's it. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, selling it means you got to figure out when to buy it back, right? So you got to get your timing right twice. But when you use options like you just described and you're able to create, you know, risk-defined positions, uh, and I don't want to get too nerdy about the whole thing, but uh, you can really give yourself some defined parameters and outcomes that, A, limit your risk on the downside, uh, let you take directional plays that also limit your risk if you're wrong, um, and can keep you invested but with less risk. Right. So it definitely goes to show how, you know, when you have more tools at your disposal, you literally have more choices uh, to deal with these kind of catastrophes. So you and I and, and uh, I'll throw it in our uh, we mentioned Mick, uh, the trader, you know, we were having discussions. And, we, and I remember it, it, when the markets were at their worst this time, uh, we were talking about what it reminds us of. And I remember I kept saying, you know, this reminds me of like 97, 98. And I really couldn't remember why. But it, it just, uh, so what I did was I, I just jotted down some notes because uh, I was, you know, on a, on a trading desk, active trader, you know, group back then. And, um, and so I wrote down my recollections and then I actually went back and did some research. And here's why it reminded me so much. I, it's like, you know, when you're walking down the street and you see someone, you know, you're like, I know that person. I just don't know where. So Think about 97, 98. That was only 10 years off from 1987. I mean, it's hard. Like we go back 10 years now, it's 2010. So it wasn't that recent. And at the time, uh, August of 98, the S&P was down, I think, close to 16% for the month. And that was the highest monthly drawdown since 87. And that, you know, but small caps were down 25. EM emerging markets was down 27. Um, you know, you mentioned the three things, the three things back then that I remember, uh, it started in 97, you had emerging market currencies like the Thai bot, I think the Korean won, uh, a missing one, uh, they, they got devalued. And one of the problems with emerging markets is when you, you devalue the currencies and a lot of times their bonds, they, they issue debt in us dollar denominated or Euro dollar denominated debt. And so if their currency depreciates, um, they've got a, their, their payments become much greater because they need any more of their own currency. But you had that, you had long-term capital. Well, you had the Russian ruble devaluation. Russia defaulted in 98 on some of their debt. And that was August of 98, not only in their own currency, but, uh, but yeah, uh, but also in, 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 uh, in us dollar based and also in their own currency. And then, uh, you know, the other thing, so you had that, and then you also had, uh, oh, what am I missing? 98. Um, but obviously all, all the, uh, um, and here, here's the other crazy thing. Emerging markets had a drawdown of 38% in 97 and a drawdown of 46% in 98. Um, so the speed in, in August of 97, we had trading curves, meaning the market was, was shut down. Um, one of the interesting things, though, about that one is high yield spreads didn't move in 97. They only moved 400 basis points. But to your point about, you know, the things that are most beat up, sometimes, you know, 98 uh, EM was down 25% emerging markets, and the S&P was actually up 28%. Uh, but in 99, emerging markets was up 67%. So it, I just, I, ha I had to go back and look, because it's like, and by the way, there was no recession in 97, 98. Like our bond market was fine. The S&P was up in 97. Um, but it was just that speed. But to, to your point about the rule of three, it was like, um, oh, yeah. So long-term capital management went bust, the Russian default, and then you had the EMs. There's your three things right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, they kind of compound on each other, right? One doesn't happen in a vacuum, but when they when it starts to, when, when one thing contaminates another, uh, it, it, you're right. Those, and they could cause additional collapse. Um, you know, the, the issue is, and you were telling me, Derek, about August of that year, Right. Um, I do think that, you know, the big dips and the big rebounds happened very quickly then, which is probably why you felt that it felt like, you know, this. Maybe you want to describe a little bit what you saw, say, in even, you know, the middle of that year. 
Yeah, I mean, so 97, so the, the crash in EM, but the S&P was fine. So August of 98, the news comes out about Russia defaulting and the market just drops. And it was over, I think it was over a one month period. And, you know, a 15% drop in the S&P back then was, was pretty substantial. Also, they had the old trading curves in from 87. So it was points, not percent. So I remember, you know, the, the market's getting halted. I also remember, though, because of the volume, and this is something I just remembered now, we had to go to paper tickets. And what that means for people is instead of being able to enter orders on, on a computer, that system, I, I don't remember why I'm remembering this, but you had to enter. You had no idea whether orders were already in. You had to mark them as possible duplications just because the volume of stuff that we were, we were putting in. And then, you know, you'd be there till 10 o'clock at night going through these accounts. You'd actually pull up, I was going to say microfiche, but it was something similar. You'd pull up the statements to see what the positions were. And it was just crazy. Um, but it was, it was the speed. I think after about two months, if you would have sold at the low, you would have missed like, you know, something like 20, 30% on the S&P. Um, and, and I think that's, it was just so fast, so quick, um, but it's the same thing. Like, you know, it, back then, if you would have had a hedged portfolio and you said, okay, well, the hedges are making money while I'm losing, maybe it stops you from getting out. But that it was the same thing, Jay. It was the speed down, the speed up that I remember. Yeah, you know, the, I, I will make one other comment about the speed here and 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 the construction of using hedging. Um, the benefit is that, that we saw this time is, Folks realized, hey, you know, my losses are limited. I don't have to make this decision like, oh my gosh, am I losing my retirement money? And is this going to be a three-month thing or a three-year thing, right? And do I need to get to cash? Uh, because they were protected, right? And so we saw how stops uh, were a bad way of getting out of the market in the flash crash, which we just had the 10-year anniversary of. Um, uh, we've seen how, you know, emotional decisions are a bad way of... Uh, of choosing what to get out. I mean, the bottom that we saw on March 23rd, let's hope that's the bottom. It probably will be, but you never know. The bottom that we saw on March 23rd, you know, fear was pretty high and it seemed like there was a lot more to go down, right? And so anybody that sold on that date or liquidated that date or just panicked and said, take me to cash on that date, obviously thought more was coming, right? Um, they've all been proven wrong so far. Uh, and it's my, it's, it's, you have to eliminate that, when do I go to cash and when do I come back in? Because I'm pretty sure any of those folks that went to cash on those days didn't jump back in uh, anytime soon because I thought it was going to get worse when the market was at 2200. They're, they must uh, have a lot of hes hesitancy. hesitancy. They're hesitating on getting back in when the market's you know bumping up close to 3000 on the S&P. So I think it's, it's, it, it makes it really tough. Um, uh, and you know, the best players in the, in the, in the space don't get that right all the time on that exit and entry entry is always the harder part, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that if you could stay the course and if you're worried about losses, you protect things up front and you hedge it. That's, and I know you and I both subscribe to that, uh, uh philosophy. I think what a lot of people this time were waiting for is remember we had the leg down in, in you know, the fall of 2008. And then you had that, that last leg down in March. Um, in, in 97, 98, you had EM does a double drawdown, but the S&P never did. I think that's what a lot of people, it seemed like, and by the way, when everyone thinks something, it's usually wrong. Uh, but it, it seemed like the prevailing sentiment for a while is, hey, we're going to go down, we're going to go back up, we're going to go back down. And this isn't over yet, so who knows? Um, you know, 2001, was one, and I'll let you start in this. Obviously, this is the the one of your three has to be the the tech bubble, uh, but two thousand one was different uh, from these other two as well. Yeah, I mean two thousand one. So we're both in the business at that time. Two thousand, right, Jay? I'm, I'm actually two thousand one is nine eleven. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of going ahead. Yeah, you know, but they had, they they ended up kind of blurring together a little bit, right? Um, in hindsight, but you're right. When the tech bubble burst in 2000, it was, you know, overvaluation. It's how are, how is, you know, Clorox going online going to jack their, you know, prices or jack their revenue up 50%. I remember that being one of the jokes, right? Just if you had a .com, your PE, you know, increased dramatically. 
And, uh, you know, that sell-off was really, yes, it, it bled to other sectors, but, you know, it almost, in a way, um, stayed in the NASDAQ, right? Stayed in the heavy, tech-heavy sectors. And I know it took us a long, long time to get back above, you know, those those highs, uh, at least, gosh, I'm trying to think, when did the NASDAQ break back through 5,000 in the end? 2016, Yeah, maybe? so it's a 16-year recovery. That's a long way to go. I There's think. a lot of people that their retirement plans changed when they thought, you know, owning JDS Uniphase was the way to go. <laughs> so, right. um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, gosh, I think Derek, you even said this, right? The heaviest uh, allocation of the NASDAQ was Sirius XM Radio, right? It was like 9% at that time. That was the number, the highest weighted stock in the NASDAQ 100 yeah, in March of 2000. It's like five bucks now. Like the stock is like, you know, it never went anywhere because everybody thought, ooh, pay for radio is going to be the thing. Like it was just such a disconnect with reality uh, and, and traditional earnings that, uh, it had, it had to flip back, right. It was, it was just so stretched. Um, you know, when I, when I, so when I think back through that, you know, watching, uh, things like margin calls and unfortunately, you know, liquidating client accounts back then when we were working at the brokerage firms we're working at, I was working at a place called Daytech, uh, uh, at the time before, uh, they merged with Ameritrade No. too. Uh, I, you know, when I think through all of that, the panic there was, um, was definitely more retail related than institutional related. You know, when I think about 0809 and when I think about this COVID crisis, um, they were more institutional versus say, you know, the individual trader uh, uh, that, uh, that, that, that was in there thinking, you know, AOL was going to be the thing forever. Do you, I remember there was a couple funny, no, I shouldn't say funny. Um, but the other day I was, I was talking to somebody about um, pets.com and that was, that came out like when that came public in '99. I think they were bankrupt nine years, nine months later. Their revenues weren't much, uh, and somebody said, "What was it? Pets.com? That's what do you mean that that went away?" This is somebody younger, and they're like, "That's the pet store." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, that domain was bought at a bankruptcy auction, you know." But they they went public. I remember there was an any time you put a .dot com on the end of something, that was thought of to be you know the the holy grail. The thing I remember, there was a company called pinkmonkey.com. And I, I'll have to do some research and find this, but I know it happened. And this company went from like, it was a penny stock. It was trading like, you know, maybe even less than a penny. And it went to like, you know, three or four bucks. And somebody I was, I was working with called the company. They got the company information on Bloomberg. And it's like a, a college bookstore that was selling essentially cliff notes. And there's such little information that the stock went up thousands of percent and then obviously it crashed, but it was just, it was crazy. Some of the stuff that you saw back then and, and people have more information now. It reminds me a little bit of uh, even just, you know, a year and a half ago with the blockchain uh, uh, stuff, right? Remember uh, that some company threw the word blockchain on the end of its name and it went up 200% basically overnight, right? It was, it was as Bitcoin was approaching uh, 20,000, um, by the way, close to 10,000. I think yesterday I saw it well over 9,000. So interesting, right? You may, you may get that resurgence happening again, but hopefully we're a little more <laughs> disciplined about it. Oh, one, two. I mean, obviously we were already in a recession. That's what people forget when, you know, nine 11 happened. And that's sort of, I think, uh, you know, the market went down. It didn't go down that much further from memory, but it did prolong sort of the the recovery like it's uh um things stayed a little bit depressed for a while uh, but it was really you know you look at some of the other sectors you know some people call them factors like value or or you know large cap x technology the damage actually wasn't that bad during that crisis not like 08 certainly yeah i mean uh forget about the human tragedy of 9-11 yeah. uh, for a minute um people forget that the market was down seven percent the week leading up to that, right? And yes, when we eventually opened back up, we're down another seven. But uh, you know, the, the country did rally around that recovery, uh, and again, it was isolated, right? I, I, you know, I don't know if that was. Uh, I don't know. I agree. It extended the recession, didn't throw us into a recession. We're already dealing with one at that point. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that another. Let's call that a black swan event, right? I mean, we always talk about the black swan uh, events with our strategies and how we aim to manage through those. Um, 
you know, this is probably, I mean, I don't know how you don't call this a black swan event, right? And it's not so much the virus was the black swan. It was the forced government shutdown of the economy that I think is the black swan event, right? I, uh, at first I had thought, well, the virus is kind of, you know, that's the thing, but you know, to really, the black swan event is really unpredictable. And, uh, they made movies about this kind of an event happening, right? So it's not like we didn't know it, it was a it was a, a potential looming threat that there could be uh, some sort of a, a pandemic. It's that's a real word. It's not the first time we made that word up. It's been in existence for a while. You shared with me other pandemics and plagues through history, right? It has happened before, but the way we dealt with it this time and the government shutdown and you know the forced recession of well, we don't know what the Q2 recession data will be, whether it's 30, 40, 45 percent drop in economic activity. That to me is the black swan event in this scenario. But we are definitely managing through one of those right now, like 9-11. Yeah, it, it's uh I think when you look at right now too, you mentioned the economy and uh, you know, you mentioned the markets. Like the economy, we were still getting good financial numbers, economic numbers. But it's like you knew the train was coming. You knew it was coming uh, ahead of time, which normally doesn't happen. I mean, I, I, like if you would say, hey, I think a recession is going to happen in Q3 of 2023, you'd be like, okay, great, good, write that down. But you knew it was coming. And, but then the market, obviously, as you said, is looking forward. And I think people forget that sometimes. Like it's, it's the old adage if you, uh, when you when somebody does valuation and, and other people smarter than I am do this for you know really do this as analysts like you're you're making estimations about cash flows over the next couple of years and you and you're looking at a some sort of a growth rate and by the way you know part of the reason why Amazon and Apple have lived up to their valuation is people underestimated you know how much uh, growth they would have but I think that's that's one of the things you're seeing now too there's this economic thing. And I think the assumption is there's going to be pain, but then at some point, you know, hopefully things turn around uh, and the market is discounting that. But, um, you know, and, and who knows, maybe this is overdone to the upside or will be overdone to the upside at some point. I don't know where that is, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard to know. And it's interesting you say about, you know, you never know where a recession is. Let's, let's look not so far back in history. Look at December. Let's maybe fourth quarter of 2018, right? Starting in October of 2018. Mm, the forgotten bear had, market. <laughs> it, I mean, it really, I know the market didn't go down technically 20%, but just about every sector had a bear market during that time period. Um, you had this, you know, we almost talked ourselves into a recession, right? You had the inversion of the curve. The Fed was going to raise rates. You had some really large companies warning about, you know, a drop in, in revenue. And we almost talked ourselves into a recession of the market, you know, had a three-month blip, a wiggle of dropping 19 plus percent. Uh, but, not, you know, December, I want to talk about December for a minute. So that I just, you brought up, we never know when a recession is. We clearly didn't have a recession in, in 19. 19 was a really a boom year for the markets. Uh, great. 19 was great. 18 was wrong. But the thing that we should have learned from 18 was the speed that we could, the speed and lack of liquidity that the market could reflect when fear gripped it. And what we saw in those last, you know, that second to last week leading up to Christmas was exactly what we experienced Maybe not exactly. It was a fraction of what we ended up experiencing in February, March of this year. But it told you that the market is fragile. And when fear grips it, people are walking away. Liquidity dries up. And, you know, that was a little bit of a, we all should have taken a little, uh, uh, seen that smoke and known that there was real fire somewhere. And I don't think that problem has been solved, right? The uh, institutional trading and algorithmic trading, uh, and I'm not blaming it on the machines. Don't get me wrong here. We're all, you know, products of the market. I get that. But the speed at which the market declined in December of 2018 should have given us a hint that it was possible to experience what we did in 2020. You know, it's you realize on an intraday basis the market was down greater than 20 percent. On a closing basis, it was like 19.7 percent down. Yeah, and that's yeah. The, the little difference between an official, right? Because the official bear market is uh, over twenty percent, you know, twenty percent pullback from from the high, right? So, I mean, that's the bear market that we all forgot about. Like, theoretically, had a bear market. This is the second bear market in, you know, less than uh, what is that? Less than a year and a half, right? So, 
I think it's a great point because it's it's sort of like how I say 97, 98 was the forgotten one because we didn't have a recession and, and the rebound was quick. Yeah, 98. Do you remember the like Christmas Eve? The market was at its low for the, uh, you know, at the pullback. And all of a sudden it just, that's it. That that was that was the bottom right there. But there was a ton of fear in the market on Christmas Eve. It was just every day we're going to be down 3%. I don't care if it was a full day or a half day. And that was a half day. And I remember going, really, we're going to do it again? We're going to be down three and a half today? It was only, only open for four hours, which, you know, now that, that's an eternity of what we versus what we were going through in March, right? And like I said, the market moves 7% in basically 30 minutes in March to the upside, right? But the downside moves were just as fast. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, that looks tame compared to what we just went through. Uh, I got to tell you, I don't know of any structural changes or liquidity changes or requirement changes that are going to take those kinds of market moves uh, off the table from happening again. I just don't know. doesn't seem like there's anything that's going to change there. And nobody's crying about it, right? No one's going, well, that just shouldn't happen. It's really being accepted as this is the current market structure of the financial markets in the United States right now. I'll sort of leave the the Fed intervention for another time because we're running up on on time. Speaking of time, and that could be uh, we could go on for. Uh, but I, I would just say that you and I have both commented, you know, the old "don't fight the Fed" and the the speed and size of what they're doing is fairly unprecedented in, in from my memory. I don't think there's any other time they've done this much. No, I mean, what percentage of GDP are they, you know, flooding into the market? Right? Are we at like how, how many trillions have they put? Twelve? Is it twelve percent? Yeah, something like it's that. It's a humongous yeah. amount of our GDP. Are they 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 putting into the market? And eventually, we'll have to pay for it. Somebody did ask me, "How are we going to pay for that?" And I think you could save that for future Fed discussions and interest rate discussions. But yeah, I mean, so you're right. Unprecedented Fed support can't fight the Fed. There's no bigger institution in the world than the U.S. government. And when they decide that they're buyers, you you kind of want to be on the right side of that. All right, Jay. We'll we'll leave it there for now. And uh, you know, this has been fun. I, I've enjoyed talking about the the markets, and we we probably could have could have been like the Michael Jordan Last Dance dec- documentary. We could we could have done like <laughs> oh, a please. ten episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you know, uh, as we leave, remember, you know, uh, if you find this valuable, please share it with uh, friends or, or people who aren't friends. Uh, give them the link to the podcast, and uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, maybe we'll do an update at some point once we have a, a better. We're like a year out from this. uh, But anyway, Jay, thanks again for, uh, for coming on. Great being on, Derek. Thanks for having me.